Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are continuing our uh, multiple front assault on Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. uh, taking it down from, from different directions, hopefully pushing right to the core and dismantling the command center. Uh, we've already talked about pink, and now we're talking about lingerie. Full disclosure, both of us are sitting here wearing Victoria's Secret lingerie. Yeah, well, we had to get in, into character. Right. So... Anyway, we alternately wanted to uh, call this episode Leonardo DiCaprio Explained. <laughs> because, as, as you may or may not know, this guy is, seems to be obsessed with Victoria's Secret lingerie models and dates them quite a bit. Yeah, I was reading, uh, in particular, uh, one of the articles we were looking at talking about the selection for Victoria's Secret models, or mm-hmm. angels as they're called, and... There was there was at least one who had dated Leonardo DiCaprio and is therefore kind of on their their blacklist. Really? Yeah, because it's a a careful balancing act, choosing exactly who is going to represent the product. Because you have a product that is for women, Mm -hmm. that is, you know, for women, but it's also kind of for men, and then men offer off sometimes purchasing it, but also women are. So you need that that model that is appealing to both. But without seeming a threat uh-huh. to the, like, that's their reasoning. You don't want, want this model to be a threat to the female customers. So they, they steer away from models who have appeared in men's magazines or have any kind of even slight celebrity gossip kind of tinge, such as, you know, dating Leonardo DiCaprio, I guess. That's right. Cause I remember reading something about Kate Upton. And the reason mm-hmm. why she wasn't selected as a Victoria's Secret model, I think because of the men's magazine. I believe so, yeah. She was already everywhere in all these different magazines. And, uh, and, and also it probably comes down to just complete image control too. Like these, these are the women representing their product. And the more control they have over them as ultimately spokespeople for their product, the better, right? Yeah. I was thinking about this in terms of potato chips. Okay. Because, you know, a potato chip is what we call, would call a super normal stimulus, right? Yes. The kind of food that is not just like, hey, that's food. It's like, hey, look, I am full of fat and salt and you want to crave mm-hmm. me because I'm gaming the reward system of your brain. And I was thinking about the machinery that's brought in for potato chips, that $40,000 piece of machinery that actually is calibrated to simulate chewing a chip oh, to yes. get the perfect sort of um, acoustic pitch to a chip and I was thinking the same sort of thing is at work in the lingerie arena. I mean nothing is is put up for chance here and we'll talk a bit more about that. And they may even bring in the chewing machine for the the edible varieties. Oh dear. Yeah. But uh but in, anyway, yes. So we're talking about stimuli. We're so we're in we're inevitably talking about the reward system of our brain. Uh, if you've listened to the show long enough, then you've you've heard us go through the reward system of the brain and talk about dopamine many times. Uh, basically, getting down to the the just core genetic mission of any organism to breed and reproduce, to eat and power the body, and uh, and so forth. So when you're engaging in 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 stuff of this nature, you're engaging the dopamine pathways, and uh, and and when you start tweaking it, when you start uh, changing your expectations, you're you're repro- reprogramming a very very complex reward system. Yeah, and that's why addiction happens, right? So right. very easily with different things in our lives, uh, because 
there's a couple of things that work really well on the reward system. Food, as we say, the potato chip. And sex. Yes. We're wired to want to have sex to propagate our genes. Therefore, when we see that piece of lingerie, it mm-hmm. may act as a kind of potato chip of the mind. Yeah, and like the potato chip, it's constantly marketed at us. Constantly, but especially around Valentine's Day, because this is the idea that this is a season of of, of love, or at least it's marketed that way towards us, a season of love, a season of sex, and then here is the uh, the official garment of uh, foreplay and romance, if you will. That's right. In Victoria's Secret, the Emporium of Supernatural or super normal <laughs> stimuli. Supernatural stimuli would be pretty great. Um, it, would, it would be neat if they if they had ghost panties. That would be a nice uh, thing whoa. to market. Yeah. All guaranteed to be haunted. Huh. Uh, some of them may be. All right. In 2013, Vicky's Secret raked in $6.6 billion. And according to Forbes magazine, Valentine's Day itself is an $18.6 billion event. And lingerie represents a pretty decent piece of that pie. Yeah, I mean, and they're really hacking into us with this with this holiday. So it makes sense that the uh, the, the, the figures would be that high because you're you're cracking into our relationships, into our sexual desires, and saying, uh, "Hey, it's Valentine's Day. We created it, but you've got to live with it." So here's the, here's a list of things you need to purchase. Here's a list of experiences you need to have so that your life uh, can it all uh, be in keeping with uh, what you see on TV. That's right. And what you see on TV and what you see on the Internet, that none of that is like willy nilly stuff that they just paste up there. They don't just take a couple of pictures of, you know, thin women that are gorgeous in uh, a couple of pieces of material on their body. There's a lot of thought put into that. And uh, professions converging yeah. to, to see this product brought to market. Yeah. And according to a Fast Company article by Rebecca Greenfield, the company Adore Me does some really rigorous A-B testing. Okay, A-B testing. This is the, the the general, do you like A or B? Do you like this one or that one? And if you answer enough of these questions, then you you provide insight into your wants and desires. It's the kind of thing you see on Netflix uh, as famously used A-B testing. You see like two titles, which one do you prefer, A or B? You go through enough of that, then uh, the system will have uh, some sort of general idea about what you like. Yeah, and we're talking about the collection of some really rigorous statistics taken here. Yeah. Now, a lot of companies do this, and Google does this, too. Well, we've done it. HowStuffWorks.com has done it. You're right. Whenever we change our homepage, we do A-B testing. So, right. We, we click, we, we look to see what people are clicking on the most. Now, Adore Me, the company, the way they do this is they shoot multiple versions of images to run on its website. So the distinctions between the pictures might include different models. Again, the models being really important mm-hmm. who you pick, right? Uh, wearing the same set of underwear in the exact same position or the same model in the same set in a different position, for example. Then, like, you know, any company that's A-B testing, it tests the options to find out which ones sell better. Now, you think that something that might fetch the most dollars and clicks would be, say, a blonde woman languishing on a bed with, say, a feather at her side. Yeah, that's what comes to mind when you think of uh, Victoria's Secret catalog, right? Yeah, or a rose or some sort of, you know, sexy-looking prop or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this is completely um, erroneous thinking. Uh, apparently, according to their A-B testing, blondes do not sell lingerie well, huh. first of all. Um, having a model pose on a couch instead of a bed is better. 
And props are distracting. I'm not surprised by that one. Mm-hmm. And touching of the face or hair instead of, say, putting your hand on your hip is much more lucrative in terms of seeing the sale of lingerie through. Hmm. Well, the, the, you know, the couch to bed thing definitely makes sense because you are, you are selling a product that is different and exciting, right? Like this is oh, not, right, this right. is not everyday underwear. You don't wear your, your lingerie to the gym. You wear it to fancy date night or Valentine's or something of that nature, right? So, or, you know, to record a podcast. Uh, but aside, aside from that, it's, it's specialty wear. And so it would make more sense. It would be more appealing out of, uh, out of the bedroom. Out of in the, the context. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Because the bed is rote. Yeah. Right. Like you would assume that there would be sex going on there, but, a couch is a little bit more exotic, maybe. Yeah, it means like maybe the kids aren't home at all. Now, <laughs> blondes, uh, it kind of makes sense to me because they only represent like sixteen percent of of society, right? Natural blondes, right? And you're you're ultimately buying this to wear yourself or for a special someone in your life to wear it. Yeah, and so for therefore they're likely not blonde. Right, they're probably brunette, right? right. So that would make sense that there's not a lot of blonde lingerie models. Um, but, uh, through its research, Adormi has found that the right model really matters even more than price. So they, this person could be blonde. It just has to be a person who is accessible. And, uh, according to that, um, uh, Fast Company article, if customers see a lacy push-up on a model they like, they'll buy it. Put the same thing on a model they don't, and even a $10 price cut won't compel them. That's how important it is that mm-hmm. that model have some sort of connection to the consumer. Yeah, and, and again, it's complex because you're you're trying to appeal to both the female and the male fan base. It's not yeah. just like you know Maxim magazine or something where if that's still around, where where you, basically one type of model could do, and there's no question about who you're appealing to. Of course, it would be really interesting to do this A/B testing in Norway, right? Yeah, where like 96 <laughs> percent of the population is blonde. That's true. Yeah, how does it break down? I'm sure there's a there's a separate uh, there's probably an office there, right? I'm sure that's on the. There probably is. Yeah. Who knows? Or maybe just people in Norway, or they don't even do the lingerie. They're just like, we have sex all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to be routinized into it via some sort of symbolic garment. All right. The point of, of talking about all this A-B testing is just to let you guys know that this that's a lot of money. Because basically, they're not just doing one underwear shot. They're mm-hmm. doing maybe up to three different versions of that shot. And that's a lot of production and post-production dollars to to put into their system and to A-B test to figure out what's going to be most lucrative for them. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to discuss more about the uh, science of lingerie. And yes, rats wearing lingerie. All right, we're back. We're getting. We're going to try to attempt to answer the million-dollar question of why lingerie even exists, which I think is going to be really obvious after this discussion of rats. Yeah, this is. You know, this this uh, this study is pretty. Uh, it's pretty wonderful. I mean, any study in which you have animals wearing clothing, and I have a. Uh, by the way, I have a, a list, um, little gallery that I'll uh, I'll link to on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com, which which uh, features a few different studies, some of which we've discussed in the mm-hmm. past, some of which we have not, that involve 
animals wearing some sort of a garment or clothing item. And this was inspired by dung beetles wearing yes. hats. Hats and uh, little boots. Yeah, little yeah. booty gloves. Yeah, they're on there twice. But uh, in this case, we're talking about rats. And... Uh, and uh, and you'll have to see a picture of this to get the full feeling because when when you look at the rat in this experiment, this is a 2014 University of Montreal study. Um, it doesn't look like lingerie. It doesn't look like a rat wearing some sort of Victoria's Secret kind of garment. Uh, it looks like they're wearing a little vest because essentially what you're trying to test here is you know what happens when you have some of the female rats wearing a garment, mm-hmm. wearing something that is not their own skin. And then what happens when you try to attach certain expectations to that garment? Yeah. So I guess you could say that this isn't exactly lingerie in the way we think about it. But for rats, wearing a vest, we'll call it rat lingerie. Yeah. And I mean, it gets down to the question, is lingerie sexy in and of itself or is it sexy uh, because of its relationship to sexual activity? Um, so what they did is they, they put these vest-like garments on the rats and these are uh, in, in the experiment, female rats wore these while deflowering male rat virgins. Okay, so then they deflowering take, them. Deflowering them. Okay. Yes. So I'm trying to be be gentle in this uh, description. <laughs> so when uh, when the scientists later gave the same male rats a chance to mate again, the rodents preferred sex with vest wearing rats because that's I mean that's what they know, right? They have associated getting to have sex with rats that are wearing vests and. Um, the, the researchers followed this up with uh, with brain analysis and confirmed that the rats are in fact learning to associate sex with clothing with clothing textures in the same way that they can also uh, associate it with odors and other contextual clues. Yeah, after they were deflowered, they were then killed <laughs> <laughs> so that their brains could be split open yes, and they could true. figure this out. I just wanted to add that. Um, so what does this tell us? It tells us that if a rat can learn to associate sex with a variety of contextual clues, including the texture of clothing, mm-hmm. so too can humans. And if you think about it, I mean, if someone comes out in, you know, baggy pants and a tee, it's not communicating a lot of like, hey, let's, let's have sex. But if someone comes out in fire engine red lace, uh, yeah, yeah. lingerie, that's communicating an altogether different message. Well, you know, but then the, the baggy pants could just say, hey, I'm really relaxed and I'm chill right now. That could also be the, the message. Here's my sexy baggy pants. But, you know, that's that's one of the things to keep in mind about, about lingerie, too, as, as we discuss all this stuff. Um, Dr. Christina Tassawi, a lecturer in marketing and consumptions at the University of Leicester School of Management, she's devoted a lot of time to researching Lingerie, and uh, she, and uh, she really drives home the fact that you have numerous factors that are going to influence any individual's personal underwear choice. Um, even though the, the media tends to market, you know, one sort of Western tiny and uncomfortable standard, she still drives home, home that for most people, comfort is often as important as sexiness when it comes to the garment. Well, and that's the truth. Yeah. Because even if you're clad in some sort of fire engine red lingerie, if it is going up into your privates and causing discomfort that there's nothing sexy about that yeah if you can't wear it comfortably at dinner when you go out Mm -hmm. to dinner on valentine's day then what's the point right right might as well just go commando yeah actually i'm not suggesting anybody do that i say at some point uh, i need to find out where that comes from that term going commando i've never heard anything about uh soldiers particularly special forces teams making a point of not wearing underwear 
that just seems like some foolery in the middle of the night, yeah. you know, and, and in the forest. And I don't know where I'm going with that. Oh, let's get that study back. Okay. Yes. Bikini clad women and impatient oh. men. Oh, yes. This is a fun one. This was a 2008 Belgian study published in the Journal of Consumer Research. Uh, that found that the mere sight of a uh, bikini or lingerie model can uh, can take a serious toll on male willpower. Now, this this ties into some of the experiments we've talked about in the past dealing with willpower. And we've talked about willpower as it's essentially like a, like one of those life meters you see in a video game. It can get knocked down. There are things that can build it back up. Mm-hmm. But when it's depleted, um, your your little character dies, essentially. And things that can deplete it are, are resisting urges to other things, being uh, being basically having supernormal stimuli thrown at you, be it a lingerie model mm-hmm. on a Victoria's Secret catalog or a piece of chocolate cake. Well, and I think a lot of it has to do with the short term versus the long term as well, which we've talked about quite a bit with addiction and rewards Um, Now, this study is called Bikinis Instigate Generalized Impatience. I love that. Generalized (laughs) in Intertemporal Choice. And this was published in the Journal of Consumer Research, uh, the 2008 edition. uh, I believe it was June. And the authors look into what they call the bikini effect, which is, as you say, it's this kind of impulsive behavior as a result of men exposed to lingerie or scantily clad women. Yeah, they discovered in the, the in the study that uh, heterosexual men who watched sexy videos or handled lingerie, they sought immediate gratification. Even when they were making decisions about, you know, it could be a decision about what soda to drink, what mm-hmm. candy to sample, or even like serious money decisions. It just bites into their ability to, to control that. And it ultimately is is kind of zen. Uh, because the researchers are arguing that uh, this this bikini effect causes a shift in time preference, forcing the male gazer to live in the moment. So there's no future, there's no past, there's only the here and now, and your genetic programming is just saying breed, but since you can't actually mate with a Victoria's Secret catalog, uh, you end up just Many gobbling. Many have tried. Many have tried. <laughs> Many have tried. Uh, instead, you just gobble down a donut or you, you binge purchase something on Amazon and call it a day. Yeah, and that, it's the present thing, right? The short term. Um, Bram Vanderberg, who is one of the study's authors, says that after they touch a bra, men are more likely to be content with a smaller, immediate monetary reward. Hmm. Uh, nothing to say of the sugary sodas, right? As right. opposed to something that was healthy, like, you know, some fruit. Yeah, I mean, obviously, sex sells. Uh, we don't ha- even have to to underline that for our listeners. But this is one of those studies that provides a little more scientific weight to that reality. You know, that when you see a scantily clad uh, character holding a product or in some way engaged in a particular bit of advertising, like that's what's going on there. It's, it's, it's hacking your brain. It's changing your ability to think about past and future. Yeah. And I did want to mention to you that in this study, um, not all of the, the heterosexual identified men, uh, responded in the same way. In yeah. other words, some of them were highly responsive to rewards while others were not as sensitive to it. And some of that may be in, um, it may just be in whatever their personal experiences with rewards and gratification and maybe even addiction and those mm-hmm. pathways in the brain. Yeah, it's it's by no means a one-size-fits-all scenario. Yeah, it's not that sort of like, and this happened, that Iuga effect, <laughs> and their eyeballs came out of their head. And uh, No, it, it was a bit different for everyone. But on the whole, they did see that... Um, that men were making choices that were not long-term, uh, you know, pragmatic choices. 
All right. We know what our lingerie choices are present today, but we're going to look at a few other things that may be available. And one of the things, uh, which I don't think is a, a big surprise here, is lingerie that could be printed on demand. Yeah, indeed. I mean, 3D printing and the ability to print objects, uh, even though it's, it's very much... Uh, Still in its uh, its early days right now. Uh, we've talked again and again about the the potential future here. Your ability to print everything from specialized parts to just complete uh, devices, mm-hmm. even food. This is just going to completely change the way we consume and acquire products. Well, in in terms of lingerie and bras in particular, I think that this is something that is kind of exciting because is. Everybody knows, or as Oprah has educated us mm-hmm. all, most women are wearing the wrong bra size. I've seen statistics out there, like 80% of women, uh, I don't know if the 80% is correct, but that's because the, the human breast tissue does not conform to, like, we have these neat little, like, cup A, B, C, D, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, but it doesn't really conform to that. So you have this company called JoyFit that has an app that could allow you to take a panoramic video of your breast um, when then you choose your bra preferences and features. And this information and your video are submitted to their cloud hub. <laughs> I don't see any problems with this. Yeah. Uh, where your video will be processed, created into a profile, and then the create the shape of the bra based on your actual dimensions and then 3D printed. And this is still a kickstart venture, so the company is still raising money. But they plan to retail the bra for $99. Well, you know, the, the potential security issues aside, <laughs> it, this sounds great. Because, right. I mean, because it, it actually it goes beyond laundry. It gets, when you get into clothing itself, like like the, the fixed sizes of things, it, it, it's so off. You know, you, yeah. you see clothing on television, and, without, and you don't even think about the fact that every piece of clothing they're wearing... Has probably been custom fit. Like even if it's a T-shirt, you know, in any kind of major production, everything's been thought out and planned and measured. And then you go and you try and buy a T-shirt and into the or jeans or what have you, and the sizes are all wrong. Like I find that just with me buying a T-shirt, it's been like a a, a ten twenty year struggle to find a, a, a cut of a T-shirt that uh, that fits comfortably on me and allows me to uh, to reach things over my head without exposing my midriff. Now imagine if on your chest, your breast tissue mm-hmm. tripled, quadrupled in size, and you then had to fit some sort of garment over that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely engineering that goes on in bras, so this is very interesting. Um, now, what could maybe merge with this technology is better understanding the body, in particular the torso, to kind of get better fits in general. Yeah, and in this, we turn to the work of uh, Kenzuki Nakamura of uh, Kyoto Institute of Technology and Takio Kurokawa of Osaka University. And they, uh, in their study, they identified body shape components critical for designing, especially close-fitting products, uh, such as lingerie, right. stuff where the contour and actual shape of the body is is really important. It's you know, it's not just a baggy shirt; it's something that actually needs to to fit tightly with a specific body. And uh, and so they, they they kind of, to a certain extent, they were kind of reinventing um, how we size uh, these products. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, they, they were using laser uh, meteorology to map control points at specific sites on the women's trunks, as they were referred to in the study. And in doing so, uh, 
open up the possibility to classify body shapes into more classes. So it's not just, uh, you know, size one, size two, size three, or whatever. It's it's all the various uh, variations based on the different control points. Yeah, and they took 560 Japanese women aged from 19 to 63 to get mm-hmm. all of those data points to try to figure out uh, better classifications for the torso. And, of course, the problem, and ultimately where the potential answer of 3D printing comes in, is if you create more and more different sizes, that's more and more different sizes that would have to be produced and kept in stock somewhere, right. unless it's print-on-demand. And then it's this information is just all in the, the catalog. Oh, well, that changes everything, right? Because now you're at home and you're uploading your own dimensions, mm-hmm. and you can um, automatically print your own Wonder Woman-inspired bra. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's going to fit great. And yeah. I'm not saying I'm going to do that, but I might. <laughs> and if you're just say a, if you're just a, a, a guy who wants to touch some lingerie, you no longer have to go to the store <laughs> and uh, and pretend that you're buying it for your girlfriend. Uh, you, you can just uh, you can just print it out. Just print them out all day. Well, and so a lot of this, too, that we're talking about is heteronormative, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about this is very much the the assumption that it's a male that wants to look at a female in lingerie. Hey, maybe a guy wants to have lingerie for himself, design it for himself. Indeed. I mean, there is there's a lot of lingerie for men out there. Some of it is traditionally, you know, female lingerie that is then co-opted by by the male wear, mm-hmm. which is which is fine. And then there is uh there's male lingerie, which uh, can also be, you know, just as ridiculous as female lingerie, uh, if not more so in the sense that it's not, uh, you know, bare, just not driven into our minds as much through through marketing. But I, I did some Google image searches before this episode, and there's some uh, there's some pretty wacky male lingerie out there. Speaking of, have you seen the Saturday Night Live spoof of Justin Bieber and Calvin Klein underwear? No, it's pretty great. All right, uh, <laughs> just leave it at that. Okay. Um, one thing we did want to mention uh, before we close out today is something called Fundaware. Now, we've talked a bit about technology and its ability to interact with us in ways that could change the landscape of uh, not just uh, sexuality, but expressing that sexuality. And certainly, Fundaware fits in this category. Yes, uh, fungaware. This is um, this is underwear that's made from fungus. It's actually grown. Oh, we have different notes. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, uh, as much as I like the idea of fungaware, uh, yeah, fungaware. We're talking about wearable technology and lingerie coming together that would uh, allow people to to touch each other across space and even and even time. We're talking about uh, some of the same themes that we discussed in the Hotel of the Future. Yeah. You know, talking about virtual sex and linked dreaming. We're talking about some of those elements finding their way into our lingerie design so that two lovers may be on separate sides of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they're both wearing fun to wear, then they can essentially be in the same room. And now this is it's worth noting that we're, we're not talking about... Just underwear with, say, a vibration device in it. Like that's technology's been around for a while, and right. it's, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's not effective, but it's not particularly nuanced. This is aimed at using similar technology to replicate actual human touch with the garment via a smartphone app yes. and across vast distances, as you've already said, which is what I think makes this stand out from the the, the technology of just having vibrating underwear. You know? Yeah. Now, again, in the same way that there would seem to be some security issues about sending video of your um, your breasts 
to a lingerie company online, I do have to wonder, does this mean that someone could hack it and like touch everyone's fun to wear at once? That's a question. I mean, there's, there's all these sorts of security issues. People see videos of your breasts that you've uploaded and they hack into your underwear. Mm -hmm. And none of this is maybe so strange to think about if you live in Japan because their technology and, and underwear have been, I don't know, I guess you could say thought about quite a bit. Yeah, indeed. Um, in, in particular, one of the, the, uh, the breakthroughs that we were looking at was the, was the so-called frozen underwear. No, not frozen underwear. Not but cold. Like, not cold. Like, that's not really much of a breakthrough. We've had like, that for Let ages. it go. Yes. Let it go. Yes, the Sorry. Disney Frozen movie. Yeah. I do not remember a scene from the movie in which the two sisters touch underwear, but that is the idea behind mm-hmm. this technology. Yeah, right? it's marketed as like the little sister and the big sister bra. Mm-hmm. And if you presumably chest thump each other, okay. then that activates the bras to light up. Okay. Nothing creepy about that. No, well, not, I mean, not overtly. But it's a, you know, it's a similar, similar technology. We're talking about let's, let's, let's make wearable technology in our lingerie become one uh-huh. so that they, that creates an interactive experience. Let's encourage sisters to bump their breasts. What? It's like a chest bump, right? It's, it's no more. I mean, I don't I know. I mean, but you can't, but here's the thing. You could just chest bump each other, but you couldn't tell whether or not the bras were lighting up unless there was a shirt that was off, right? Well, maybe the light's really bright. We don't know. I mean, oh, it could be dear. a thing where they, they chest bump and it's just, it's like the sun has, uh, it's like an, an, an atomic detonation mm-hmm. within their sweaters or something. Okay. I don't know. You just keep going with that. Yeah. All right. So, but I'm not completely surprised because Japan has been known for a, a lot of different, um, appetites, I guess you could say. And, uh, especially with their vending machines mm-hmm. and, I don't even know if I can say it. The uh, the selling of what used to be underwear that was worn dirty U- used underwear. Used underwear. Used yeah. underwear. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is fascinating. Uh when we started researching this like I briefly went down the rabbit hole on um on, on Japanese vending machines and the and the the idea of used underwear in vending machines. It's worth noting just right off the bat that if you go to Japan mm-hmm. and you're to ask the average person on the street about this, they're probably not going to know what you're talking about. Like it's not, it's one of these things that has been elevated to almost like a legend status in the West about Japan. Right. But it's not, uh, I was reading accounts of like someone saying like, oh, I, you know, they have them on every street corner. You can just like, as if it's the most normal thing in the world in Japan to go up and buy used uh, panties out of uh, a vending machine. But it's, it's not. It might be available in a red light district. Yeah. If you're in a skeezy section of town, mm-hmm. in a skeezy store, mm-hmm. then yes, there might be a machine that is, that, that sells used or supposedly like quotation mark used underpants. And then when we're talking about vending machines as well, don't think about I'm not talking about like a fancy super high tech vending machine like our coffee machine here at work. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, you know, those little things outside of um outside of grocery stores with the little little balls in them that have like toys. Yeah. That kind of thing. You know, you put a quarter or you put your yen in and you yeah. swivel it around and it mechanically knocks out 
a container. Now, I want to point out that the, the um, underwear that is now in vending machines today is not used. They just make it look, they, they market it as though it's used. Yeah, it's but the, it's really the idea of down used. On. Yeah. yeah. However, the market for used underwear in Japan has jumped to online, of course. Yes. And so it's still something that's circulated and bought. Indeed. And in the future, in Japan and elsewhere, uh, you know, we could see a possibility of printable dirty underwear. And that's that's really where I'm hoping our technology Why not? Yeah. I mean, you could you could get the molecules on there, right? Right. That, that contain um, whatever bacteria it is that's contributing to a certain scent profile. Mm-hmm. Why not? Indeed. All right. If you're still with us, <laughs> um, thank you for joining us on our uh, ride down lingerie lane in looking at what is driving the actual sales of it, the probability of sex here is what we're talking about. Um, if you want to find out more about us, you can. Indeed. Go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, other Valentine's Day, Day episodes that we've put out this year, or the ones in the past. We did a fabulous one before about uh, slugs mating that uh, was an early assault on, uh, on Valentine's Day and the Valentine's Day Industrial Complex. Uh, you'll find all of our blog posts, all of our videos, social media links, you name it, stuff to blow your mind.com. And in the meantime, if you have any thoughts on lingerie, on, on rats in lingerie, uh, you can send those thoughts to us via email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 